The End of Grey's Malaise, written and performed by Paul Trussell. The state of bewilderment that held Webster Grey in its grip was so abject that were he to have entertained even the fleetest reminiscence of the preceding moment, languorous, unruffled and entirely pleasant, it would have served only to aggravate. Less than 114th of a second earlier, Webster Grey had been engaged in nothing more taxing than a prolonged bout of tranquil mulling. Stood at the foot of the corridor, he had wondered to himself whether or not this might be the morning he would finally venture along it into the bright white light it held at the far end. A period of idle, mouth-lolling, blank-eyed rumination. A contented period. A fearless period. A period when the good times were indeed rolling. It was only at the moment that he had made his decision that problems had arisen. It wasn't that he was in any way unhappy with his decision, quite the contrary. It wasn't as though he had found the outcome controversial or even surprising, because at exactly 9.41 that morning, Webster Gray had arrived at the self-same decision he had arrived at every morning for the preceding 19 and a half years. He was most definitely, without a shadow of a doubt, not, repeat, not, 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 moving. He was moving, though. Moving, he was. Move, move, move. Slowly, oh yes, very slowly, almost imperceptibly slowly, like a pod on the London eye. So slowly that were he to be filmed on a camcorder and watched on 64 times fast forward, he would still only appear to be moving quite slowly. Moving, however, he was, and it was this motion that constituted the primary source of Webster Gray's all-complete confusion, actual bewilderment. Why, yes, why, was his own body contradicting the measured decision he had arrived at not one moment before? A firm decision not to move made by the brain in the head of the self-same body that now chose of its own free will, apparently, to propel itself inexorably down the dingy corridor of its own front hall like some unmanned 41-year-old bloke-shaped space probe. But whilst destination front door was for Webster Gray just about acceptable, destination New Malden High Street beyond was most definitely not. Because it wasn't as though he'd never been to the end of his own front hall before. Not a bit of it. He wasn't that kind of... What? What was he? Hermit? Agrophobic? He didn't know. Didn't care, actually. Certainly he hadn't left the walls of this flat for some 235 months. He was sure there must be a name for someone like that. It was just that he wasn't that interested in knowing what that name might be. The point being that as opposed to other compulsive stayers-in that might, he imagined, be restricted by their compulsion to, say, one or two rooms... Webster Gray had always felt at liberty to roam to the very boundaries of his own admittedly modest domicile with all the freedom and self-confidence of a silverback mountain gorilla. He who knows the confines of his own prison is truly free. A Voltaire-coined phrase that had struck Webster Gray, who first heard it quoted in an episode of Holby City, as not only truly wise, but applicable to him absolutely. He actually travelled this particular corridor daily at the very least, but it was always only ever just to collect the mail. Small packets of stuff, bits and bobs that he bought and sold on the internet, the proceeds from which just about provided a very modest living. Or junk, 
Very occasionally he was required to actually open the door, but on those occasions it was always only either his bi-weekly food delivery from Jamal's or a bloke to read the meter. It was never, ever to actually walk through the doorway himself. Yet now he knew with a terrible ineffable certainty that through the doorway was just exactly where his body intended to take him. Even more terribly, he recognised that his only hope of arresting this autonomic expulsion back into the real world lay in the invocation of the disquieting freaks that had ever stalked him out there. He would have to descend to the bottommost cellars of his own memory, revisit the agonies inflicted and thereby terrorise himself back into reclusion. Most horribly of all for Webster Gray was the knowledge that this course of action could only lead to the reanimation of the three malodorous twats that constituted his own immediate family. Why exactly the moment of Webster Gray's birth had triggered amongst this triumvirate an unspoken concord against him was impossible to tell. The malevolence of their tacit union was rendered no less heinous when considered alongside the character of their sole victim. The infant Webster was, if anything, a rather likeable baby that grew into a sweet toddler. He was gently inquisitive, cried hardly at all, and possessed a somewhat unique, hypnotically pleasant aroma. If you were pushed to find any fault at all with the child, then a slight over-eagerness to please would probably have described the absolute zenith of his crimes. The only thing, in fact, less likely than Webster Gray as a target for abuse was the notion of his family as abusers. Dave Gray, for example, his father and the owner of a sweet shop in Motspur Park, had not once before Webster's arrival been guilty of anything that could have even been considered a bit thoughtless, let alone hateful or cruel. Likewise, Denise, his wife and Webster's mum, a hobbyist cross-stitcher who had also always maintained a most benevolent approach to the world and had brought up her first son Bernard, Webster's elder brother, to be equally magnanimous. As a unit, the most pejorative judgment a person might have truthfully passed upon the Gray family circa 1972 would have been that they were all, both collectively and individually, very dull. Maybe it was this grand canopy of blandness that enclosed the first three members of the Gray family that kept them apart from young Webster, who, from the very beginning, would always be the one to sport the surname with the most irony. Whatever it was that created this fissure that existed between them, there could be no doubt about the vigour with which Dave, Denise and Bernard embarked upon their mission to hurt young Webster. Webster. Webster, Webster, Webster. He was over halfway along the hall by now, the bright panes of white daylight in the front door growing larger by the second. He didn't want to have to think about his father, his mother... Bernard. He didn't want to have to think about the unconquerable gang that they had always been to him. Separate, spiteful, rooting out and feasting on his weaknesses like rabid bloodhounds. Never getting him, never letting him in when he got them. Always laughing at him, but never laughing at his jokes. His father always, but always, saying, oh, best not take a photo of Webster, he'll break the camera. <laughs> All of them making him feel worthless time and time again, and thereby making him worthless. Sticking together to prove him wrong even when he was right. Telling him when he cried out for help that he was being too sensitive. Hurting him, belittling him, being generally shit. The slights 
and digs and sneers and put-downs returned, thick and fast. The sluice gates were open and he could not have closed them even if he had wanted to. Adrenaline pumped through his body and still the memories swarmed up like wasps round spilt lager. He was by now less than 18 inches from the door, his hand reaching for the Yale lock and that... That... That is the moment when it happened. That is the moment that Webster Gray had his epiphany. Not, I repeat, not in the context of world history, an event that would ever be regarded as having any significance whatsoever, but in the life of Webster Gray, one of a very few that he would look back on in later years and regard as really, really, really quite important. As the fully grown adult visiting their infant school classroom discovers the chairs and desks that once seemed huge were in actuality quite tiny, so Webster Gray now perceived the thousand and one crimes his family had perpetrated against him. The wounds he had gone away to lick some 7,117 days earlier now not only appeared inconsequential, but more miraculously somehow healed. All he felt now as they tumbled through his mind was the bumpy surface of tiny scars, and as he opened the door they dwindled away into nothing. In their place, a fresh wave of memories flooded his mind, beautiful memories he had not entertained for years and years. Channels of his brain, blocked by the sewage of nursed hurts, now swam with remembrance of the perfect delicacies that can only ever be experienced in fresh air, and his mind sung at the prospect of once more savouring them for himself. He found himself giddy at the simple prospect of walking on grass, walking on tarmac, smelling tarmac, gazing at clouds, hearing traffic, breathing fumes, seeing people, being seen by people, and by being seen by people suddenly existing again. Rain, snow, sleet. What was sleet? He couldn't remember, couldn't care less, just wanted to feel it on his skin, sleet on his skin, let it sleet all week as far as Webster Gray was concerned. He was going to go outside and nothing was going to stop him. The door was now wide open, daylight pouring through it like bath water. The sounds of traffic and birds and people boomed at him like a symphony. He inhaled a huge, heady lungful of sweet-tasting carbon monoxide-seasoned outdoors air, and for the first time in 10,248,487 minutes and 19 seconds, Webster Gray stepped back into the world. Now, this was a wireless theatre download. For more information, go to www.wirelesstheatre.co.uk. Uh, if you're interested in hearing a bit more from me, you can follow me on Twitter, which is at uh, Paul Truss, P-A-U-L-T-R-U-S-S. -S.